Hey guys and gals, welcome back to the Constructive Liberty Podcast. Now I know what you're thinking if you're watching this live. This is the third live video this week and I don't do that all the time, but it's all right. When you have special guests on, you make an exception. Today I've got uh, Miles Wakeham on with me, who was with me on episode 58 back in October of 2021. That was a really fun episode. It's one of my favorite ones to date. So I don't know where all we're going to go today with this conversation, but it's going to be a lot of fun. I want to read a little intro, something off of Miles' website that I just pulled up here. His website is beunconstrained.com, and we'll talk about what that means. But the first paragraph says, you want to be free. Freedom comes from changing your mindset, and the path to true freedom takes courage. You need to challenge much of what society, your schools, your government, and your media has hypnotized you as the social mantra. To break free, you must put yourself first and look to who you are and what you want to be. By learning how the bankster-backed systems are enslaving you and breaking free from them, you can be wealthy, live a rich life, and regain control of your time. And that is essentially what the Constructive Liberty Podcast is about, too. I love connecting with like-minded people. But with that, I want to say, Miles, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's anytime. I, I love reconnecting with people, always meeting new people, but it's fun to go back to somebody who was on almost 100 episodes now. I just scheduled episode 150 to come out on Monday. And so it's kind of cool to, to come back a year and a half late, year and a half later and just talk about what you, I think last time we talked, if I remember right, you had just bought a compound in Mexico that was a former <laughs> bullfighting ring. Yeah. That's, what's, what's happened that's with exactly that? Right. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's where I am right now. We're not on the bullfighting ring, no. Um, yeah, so we bought a, an acre of property that used to be a matador school uh, in mm. central Mexico. And wow. then uh, immediately bulldozed the entire ring and returned it back to its original kind of virgin land. Okay. And then um, with an architect, uh, spent a lot of time trying to design, I guess I would call it a luxury home. And um, I'm going back into my past, uh, a kind of a period of time that I never really finished back in the 90s um, mm. when I was working in Hollywood uh, as a recording engineer. And I'm trying to bring that back to life again. So I decided to invest uh, way too much money uh, to build a professional recording studio on the property. Uh, but I kind of took the go big or go home attitude. Right. And, um, I was told by my architect recently that from his research, uh, he believes it will be the largest private recording studio in Latin America. So wow. physical size and capability. So I guess what we're going to end up doing, with, which is not necessarily a mission that I'm trying to get, but it will probably work this way. Um, my goal is to bring artists that uh, no, normally would have worked in recording studios back in the day, uh, bring them kind of out of the, the mothballs and back into recording again. But then for uh, new emerging artists to... Uh, particularly in Latin music, to be able to bring forward an opportunity for them to actually get to know a real recording studio rather gotcha. than, uh, you know, just recording on their laptop, which is uh, <laughs> traditional these days. Yeah, so, that's, 
That's interesting. What, what kind of got, took you back to that or what's, I know oftentimes, you know, I've, I don't have a whole lot of years behind me, but it's still interesting to look back to a certain point in life. And, you know, there's things that, that always draw us back to a certain time. What was it for you that, that takes you back particularly to the recording studio? And is that like specifically for music or is it yeah. larger like video and all? Of um, no, it's, it's music. It's just okay. all audio. Um, so I was raised a musician when I was five years old. My mother stuck a violin under my chin. Uh, when I was 11, I was in the junior symphony orchestra in Australia. Um, so music was just how I was raised. And in, mm. although I, I guess that was, I, I always think of that as kind of the right side of my brain. And then as far as the left side, uh, I became a software engineer. And I did that in the very, very early days. And I've always been dealing with the decision of whether I committed my life to the right cause. You know, I'm 58. So I've been doing this for, well, five decades or four decades or something. I mean, uh, I chose software because I, I wanted the money. Um, the problem was that the money didn't really deliver to me. I mean, I got the money, but the money mm-hmm. didn't deliver to me the the peace I was seeking, you know, the the sense of fulfillment, the sense of creativity. Yeah. And so the music was the missing link. And what happened with the weird story, when I first came to the United States, uh, I was not allowed to work for a period of time. The immigration department, the INS back in the day, um, we're taking six to nine months to process a work Ooh, permit. Wow. So I'm I'm in Southern California, which is not a cheap place to be. Right. And I'm literally, I've newly married. My wife has got a job, thank God. I'm living in this apartment uh, in the in Studio City, which is like Hollywood adjacent. And um, there was literally nothing for me to do for like half a year. Wow. So I would wander around Ventura Boulevard and go into all the guitar centers and, you know, hang out and eventually met some people and formed a band and, you know, did the typical thing. You know, I was like 25 or something when this happened. <laughs> and then um, the band did really well and we were playing up and down Sunset Strip in Hollywood and we got to know a lot of people in the industry. And uh, the next thing you know, we're getting kind of romanced by the labels to you know, if they would sign anything they thought they could make a buck out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and that introduced me to producers and recording engineers and studios, and I spent a lot of time in there. Um, it seemed like this went on for about a year. I eventually did get to work, but I was still doing the music thing. And um, what happened was our band got so close to getting a record deal, and then our bass player kind of got, I guess, freaked out and she she was a a girl um she was kind of irreplaceable and then but with all the pressure going on in her mind um she quit and so we were without our key element and we couldn't replace her and it wasn't shortly after the lead singer left and and it was like oh what do i do now yeah and i just realized i'd made all these friends in the recording studio industry and and one of the guys who was working with us was a producer who was um, working with Tears for Fears back in the 80s. And he had um, he had made this sort of suggestion to me, kind of like a, I guess, a proposal that said, look, you know everything about computers and our industry is going from this sort of move from 
analog tape into digital hard drives and computers. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about digital. You teach me everything there is to know about the computer and I'll teach you everything there is to know about recording in the in a big recording studio. And oh, I'm wow. like, I'm not going <laughs> to say no to that, right? Yeah. <laughs> when opportunity strikes, you know. Yeah, really. On. Yeah. So I ended up spending way too much time in big recording studios with him and and that was great. That led me to build my own sort of smaller studio, smaller home studio and get involved in the whole thing. Anyway, the re reason why I'm getting to this story was that years later I was uh, contracted by Capitol Records to um, engineer artists in various studios and they were cheap, I guess is a good way of putting it. <laughs> they didn't want to spend the big money for the, you know, the massive studios. They They put me in these little crappy old studios that had old gear from the 70s in it and, you know, smelled of urine and, it was, oh, man. it was pretty bad. But back in the early 90s, that was kind of cool, right? It was – anyway, um, I, there was one studio I worked at called Grandmaster Recorders in Hollywood. It's now, unfortunately, it was converted into condos, uh, you know, mm. and a restaurant or something now. But back in the day, it was famous. Stevie Wonder recorded there in the 70s and, I mean – so much was happening. And in the 90s, it didn't really have a great reputation, but it ended up becoming very famous uh, for what was done there. And I was in the middle of it working as an engineer there, not realizing what was going on about me. And um, they, you know, Tool had just recorded their first album there. And, um, you know, I was kind of cleaning up after them half the time. Um, but <laughs> But stuff like that was going on, and you were, like, in the middle of this thing, but you didn't realize it was going to be significant. And then um, the owner of the studio one day came down and said, can I book, you know, book you to work on a session coming up? We've got this band from out of state coming in. Uh, I need, a an, like, an engineer, like an assistive engineer to their producer. I'm like, sure, yeah, whatever. I mean, you know, I love working here. You've got this beautiful old Neve console, you know, which is, like, you know, to die for, you want to get one of this, that's like the pinnacle of recording consoles. Mm -hmm. And I'm just getting access to all this stuff and I'm learning and it's great. Um, so I'm supposed to do this gig and I get a phone call from Australia. My mother had a car accident and I literally had to say to him, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I've got to get in a plane and go back there and take care of her. Um, and that was the last day I ever had a recording engineering experience in Hollywood. This was about gotcha. 1995, 96, something like that. So what ended up happening, which is weird, fast forward 25 years later, uh, I'm getting uh, shoulder surgery. I'm in Guadalajara in Mexico getting it done because it was cheap. I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. I don't, you know, spend 150,000 bucks for a studio, uh, for a, um, surgery, surgical experience in the States and it's like nine yeah. grand in Guadalajara. So sign right. me up. I'm, I'm in Mexico. <laughs> uh, so I'm down there, you know, I, I get the thing done. It was great. Worked out fantastic. Um, my wife and I rented a Airbnb uh, for a few weeks because I didn't want to leave the town until I knew everything was stable. So I'm recovering in this Airbnb and of course, you know, I've got nothing to do. So I'm watching YouTube videos and, um, I'm just watching all these YouTube videos, every weird subject known to man, as you do. 
And I stumble upon uh, a guy who had a channel for recording engineers. And he's interviewing this dude who produced the second Foo Fighters album. Uh, the one, the real famous one, the one with like Everlong and all these major hits on it. Mm. And uh, he's talking to the guy, and I'm, I'm watching this thing. And he goes, "Where'd you get? Where'd you record this?" He goes, "Oh, in this beat up old studio in Hollywood called Grandmaster Recorders." I'm like, <laughs> "Oh, hey, I used to work there." Well, that's weird. So now he's got my interest. So I'm watching it, and he starts telling the story about you know the album and how they did it. And they ask him like, you know, what were the dates when they did this? And I swear to God, that was the damn studio session I was supposed to work on. Oh, man. It's like, wow. I missed it by that much. <laughs> I missed it by that much. I'm oh. so freaking close to have been the bloody engineer on the Foo Fighters' greatest yeah. album. Mm. And I, so my wife's looking at me while I'm watching this, and I'm, my face going white, right? I'm just like, like this, you know? <laughs> and she's looking at me going, holy cow. You, you, yeah, yeah. I'm like, yeah. Really? Should have been me. I'm finding out now. Yeah, and she goes, wow. well, what are you going to do? I'm like, well, no, what can I do? She goes, well, you've got to, you've got to, you can't live in regret, right? I mean, you don't want to live like you missed this huge opportunity and you're going to go to your grave, like, you know, pissed about the fact you didn't. I'm like, yeah, I know. Uh, I don't know. What, call Dave Grohl up or something? And, you know, <laughs> no. Um I'd like to get back into it. And it just so happened that, you know, we, we raised our daughter. She's like 25. She went to college. She goes off and does her own thing. Um, and my wife and I are looking at each other going, what are we going to do for the next kind of chapter of our lives? And we ended up, one thing led to another, and we ended up in Mexico. We bought this beautiful big acreage of property outside of the town of San Miguel de Allende, which is in central Mexico, about three hours north of Mexico City. Uh, by bus and um we just decided to sell all of our real estate that we had in the in the u.s cash out you know which was great because we got out of the top end of the market yeah the last couple and, of years were ripe for that yeah yeah it was it was good so we did that bought the land and then committed to a a, a year plus long building project which is why i'm down here right now working with the developers to build this big home and then this massive recording studio. And, you know, we, at the end of it, it's like my wife keep, and I keep going back talking about this, like, where are we going to live? We're going to live in Arizona. That's where, where our home is. Uh, or we're going to live in San Miguel. And I'm like, well, we don't have a problem. We can choose either. Let's just test drive San Miguel, see what it's like. And, and if we like it, we might sell up in the States and if we don't, we'll go back and we'll sell up in Mexico. But we, how, how do you know unless you try? Right. Um, the, the whole point of this is the fact that uh, everything in life is like an adventure. And if you don't, it might, the way I look at it, if you don't engage with this and you think that you're just going to be a spectator to it, well, <laughs> you don't want to. And then, you know, I mean, don't want to miss out on opportunities that may present themselves. And then sometimes when you do, maybe you can rectify that later. So yeah. anyway, it's kind of weird. I, um, <laughs> it's funny, the people you meet, as I, as I explain this, I mean, I go back into the recording industry and people, it's funny that I was talking with a guy the other day and it's like, I'm the old guard, right? I come from the old time. 
Yeah. And so all these <laughs> these new dudes are kind of look at me going, ooh, he's like vintage. He's like nostalgic, you know, because <laughs> he knows all the stuff that led us to where we are today. And I'm like, yeah, yeah of course I do. Um, you know, we didn't have computers to do this stuff when I was doing it. It was like tape and, and mm. you know, you did everything was in the moment. And I start realizing there's so much value to that because these days, I mean, I think I was watching a, a video of like either a Billie Eilish recording or something like that. And they were going, yeah, what will happen is she'll, she'll sing like 10 seconds of a phrase and then we'll cut and paste that. And then she'll sing like this other bit and we'll take the best and we'll, we'll kind of join, join it together and we'll make a vocal out of this. And I'm going, where's the humanity in this? You know, yeah. I want to see a vocalist give me some emotion and some in the moment, you know, stuff. I don't want, I'm not cutting and pasting through life here. I mean, that's not yeah. just because you got the tool doesn't mean you should be using it. Um, but you know, you know, often people people live life like that. It seems either either looking back in regret yeah. or looking forward, hoping for someday without being intentional about it. So it's interesting to me when when you said you and your wife had the conversation of what are we going to do? Are we going to live in regret or are we going to actually be intentional about the the way we do things? And and I I love that analogy there with the cut and paste in, in the studio too. Yeah, I I have a lot of, um, you know, spending 40-odd years working in the software industry also taught me a lot about modeling and analyzing systems, particularly when you look at a situation in the world that you think, or, you know, somebody just comes to you and says, oh, you know, I'm, I work in the medical industry and I need some sort of a system. It's like, okay, well, there's a methodology for how you analyze it and work out because I'm not a doctor, right? I don't know that well, but it doesn't matter. There's a methodology how you engineer a solution for them. And I took a lot of the teaching from that and I tried to uh, create a methodology that would be analytic about how the world works um, because I wasn't really happy with what I was seeing. You know, yeah. I was looking at statistics that were very scary. How long people, you know, the, the, <laughs> The, here's the weird thing, okay, um, I'm sure many of your um, viewers are sceptical, shall we say, of government. Is that probably a good way of putting it? I would say probably. <laughs> okay, well, I'm... Uh, I'm to, to put I'm, it mildly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like a self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalist, so yeah, I, I, I am extremely sceptical. But I always find evidence as to what, at, at what supports that. So lately I've been looking at things like how much money does somebody have to have to retire? You know, it's a simple question because it doesn't matter whether you're 21 years old and you got your first job or whether you're 65 and you're going, do I have enough money to retire? One way or another, you're kind of looking at it pragmatically, right? right? Well, it's very, very hard to know the answers. And what you end up doing is if you, as you get older and you start talking to people who are like supposed like retirement planners, um, you realize they're dead broke. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. And the only thing they're interested in is billable hours from you. They don't care about mm. whether or not you're 75 and you've got enough money left. They're, you know, they're going to yeah. spin a, a whole bunch of formulae and, and and all of this. And it's like, well, how about we start with longevity? Let's have, how about we start with how long people live? And they go, oh, 
people are living these days much longer than they ever did in the past because of you know, medical technology, whatever. And so um, I call bullshit on that. I mean, the first problem is, you know, we've got this uh, government agency in the US called the CDC, the Center of Disease Control. And what they've been doing over the years is they publish every year the life expectancy numbers of US male and US females based on average statistics, and they review it every year. So it's a good right. it's a good stat. Well, in I started looking at this around about 2016 when I was sort of looking at getting out of the whole workforce game, and, uh, and I thought, well, how much money do you need, right? No one's got to answer this. So I, um, I looked at the CDC and I said, well, how long do people live? Now, my father died when he was 67, two years after he retired. Um, that's a whole other story, but I looked at it and it, it, it was like, okay, that's going to define what I don't want to do, right? right. I'm not going to go down his path. Um, but what did the government tell you? So in 2016, they were telling me that I was going to live, if I was a U.S. average male, until 79.5 years. That was the number. Okay. All right. That sounds 79, let's say 80 years. All right, fine. And then, you know, people would say, well, you know, people in Western Europe, they live a bit longer if you lived in Denmark or Sweden or something. Well, I don't live in Denmark or Sweden. I don't <laughs> want to pay their damn taxes. And it's, yeah. you, know, I'm, I'm, you know, no. Um, I live here. So tell me, how long am I going to live? Okay, 79 point right. So work out how much money you need, you know, for that. The next year goes by and I do the same thing and I, I go to the same website and I look and they go like 78.2. I'm like, oh, geez, what happened? I just lost a year. <laughs> I just lost a year, man. Only a year later, I just yeah. lost a year of life. Okay, 2019, 76.5, I think it was. Wow. I'm like, oh, God, if we keep this up, I'm not going to last until you're, you know. Yeah. Um, be and 60. So, yeah. So I'm like, Okay. So then, of course, COVID happened, right? And the CDC is, like, busy with COVID, um, you know, doing the Fauci thing. Okay, fine, whatever, you do you. Um, and then so no life expectancy numbers, nothing. Until just recently I went back to their website and I found out they actually published the 2021 U.S. male life expectancy numbers. Guess what? 70, 75? No, 73.5, uh, I think it is. Wow. So we went from nearly 80 to 73.5 in approximately eight years. Mm. This ain't going well, right? Yeah. So these are the numbers, right? And then I, I go over to the Social Security Administration's website, which you do. No, I mean, you know, I just, I'm just looking at it. And the first thing they tell you is, well, people are living longer and therefore we don't have to fund much money and you can work <laughs> until you're 67. What do you mind? You know, and I'm going, you freaking liars, you mob of total liars. You want you to work until you drop dead. Yeah. Your own department here is telling you what your actual life expectancy is, but you're so concerned about not having to be dealing with the mismanagement of entitlement mm. programs for your people that you're just going to lie through your teeth and tell them that they can work until they're 67, knowing full well five years later they're dead. Yeah. 
how yeah, on right. earth do we put up with that as a society? And and it's just another example of why government does not have your back. Yeah. And wow. it it for me it it tells me every single thing that we've been taught, everything we've been told since the age of of maybe prime like a elementary school all the way through is a lie. It's a lie that you go into debt at the age of 18 for some college degree that you that 85% of people don't even use their major in their work. Right. So how is that, you know, and then that defers the buying of a home, you know, longer in life because now you've got the student loan debt you've got to pay off. And when you get to the home, they want to, you to have 30 years. Let's say you, you buy your home at, I don't know, 30, maybe 35 because you've got to pay your student loan off first. So you do that. And then if assuming you never refinance it, assuming you never move and, you know, come on, everyone does that. But let's just assume you don't. You're on the hook to pay that sucker off until you're 60-something yeah. and you're dead seven years later. I don't know what the numbers are going to look like in 30 years we look at the CDC. They'll be telling us we're all dead at 24. I mean, th- <laughs> this is this is insane. And, and it's all a crock, right? This whole yeah. work, you know, 50 hours a week for your boss and be a great company man or a company woman. Well, Those days yeah, my, yeah, my father died doing that crap. I'm not yeah. doing that. Right. We've got to we've got to think ourselves out of this problem because this is not going to end well. And yet, look, most of society are wandering wandering around aimless like they're a zombie on the walking dead, yeah. thinking that the government's got their back and that they just need to keep following the societal norms and they don't want to be a variable and they don't want to upset the apple cart. Meanwhile, the government doesn't have your back. What the government's gone has gotten another eighty Your billion dollars. Yeah, they've got eighty billion dollars of congressional money over ten years. Forty-six billion of that they got in the first year last year. And you know what the IRS has spent that money on? Freaking AI systems to go and and George Elwell the crap out of everybody and mm. look for all of these aligned things so they can be lazy and don't need human labor, only to find out who they're going to audit, who they're going to throw in jail, who they're going to you know, raid their bank account because mm-hmm. it can all be done by computer and they can look away like, oh, it's not me, it's the computer. Yeah. I mean, come on. This is not – and this is our world, right? We embrace this whole stupid idea of this artificial intelligence and we've lost ourselves in the process. Meanwhile, we're not living very long. I, I get upset with this stuff. But you, <laughs> you, you get where I'm coming from, right? Absolutely. I mean, you ha- you have to get upset if you if you dig into it. You either have to get mad at it or turn a blind eye to it. And I think that's probably why a lot of people don't even look at it because all you do is get angry. Mm-hmm. I, I was just I was on Facebook last night for a bit, and in the town I grew up in, there they find a guy who's a veteran, PTSD, and all of that because he has chickens inside the city limits. Had him in a pen. And all of that. It's not like they're out running around terrorizing people. Right. I mean, even on a very small scale, like everything is just anything. Anytime government is involved, you have to get angry at it. If if you know, dig into what's going on. Yeah. So yeah, I, digging yeah. into all of all of those things that you were looking at the numbers and the life expectancy and the retirement age that they that they tell you you need to have and how much money 
is that what led you to contrarian thinking or is that something that you that you've had from a child up and, and how do you how what do you mean when you say a contrarian um well i in me being an immigrant from australia and coming to the states when i was like 25 um my predisposition of what the world should look like was defined somewhere else and yeah. so uh to find myself on the streets of la and to try to work out hey they're there's a whole bunch of things that are kind of weird here that don't make a great deal of sense to me. Um, but I took the position like, oh, it's okay. I have to adjust like when in Rome, right? It's my job right. to adjust to the United States. It's not the United States job to adjust to me. And and I believe in that. I mean, you know, you've got to, when you go to a foreign country, you're a guest, you're a visitor, you've got to be humble. You've got to adjust to the foreign country. Um, I didn't realize though, I mean, I know, know this now. When I got a passport, it didn't tell me I could go to one foreign country. I'd go anywhere. And so I would go where I was treated best. And yeah. in the 80s or the 90s, the United States was a very different animal than it is today. Um, I did feel free. But little by little, I had that challenged. I remember the first time that was challenged, I when I eventually did get work, I worked for this um, audio rental equipment company in North Hollywood. And uh, it was just, it was a fun place, but it was, I don't know, there were about 50 people working there and they were all musicians, right? Long hair, the whole bit. And I was cool <laughs> with that because I was a musician. So I fit right in. Um, and it was great. And I remember there was this one dude, who used to come in, everyone would just wear like T-shirts, jeans and do their thing. And this one dude, every single day he'd come in and he was like prim and proper and he'd have a, a, a pressed shirt and a tie. And he ran the warehouse, you know. And his name was Julian. i never forget this. And he was new and I was new, so we kind of hit it off and we were good friends and we'd go out and have lunch and whatever. And But he was so different to everybody else. And I'd say to him, Julian, why the hell are you here? Now, this is in the early, well, 89, 90, something like that. Um, they just cancelled a whole bunch of defence contracts in Southern California, and the big players like, you know, McDonnell Douglas and Lockheed and all these guys had been laying off their workforce. And he was one of the guys that laid off, got laid off. And he gotcha. said, well, I said, well, what did you used to do? And he goes, I used to be a quality assurance expert on rocket systems. I'm like, well, what the hell are you dealing with <laughs> renting audio equipment for? He goes, yeah. yeah, he said, I don't fit in here, do I? I'm like, no, you don't fit in here. I mean, you should work for a bank or, or something. I mean, I don't know. And he goes, well, there's only one reason why I'm here, and that's because they give me health care, uh, health insurance. And I'm like, um, okay, so I come from a country that supposedly you're not going to die if you – fall down, have an accident or, you know, have a heart attack or something um, in theory. Well, that was tested. I, uh, by the way, that doesn't always work. But Julian, he's got an autistic kid and he needs health insurance. And so he's willing to drive an hour and a half to get to work on a job that pays him half of what he used to make, dealing complete out, outcast in this place uh, just for health insurance. And so I'm mm. like, Something's challenging my perspective of what freedom is here because what I'm seeing is employer 
enslaving employee on the basis of her health care. So that's kind of weird. Anyway, I started off with that. And then I started realizing it kept going deeper. Like the the longer I went through it, the more I, I saw it in the computer industry, the more I could see people were treated as human capital, right? Not human beings. Right. And, you know, even the department that managed the labor force was called human resources. Well, I don't know. I know you as Ken, right? right. I don't know you as human as resource, <laughs> Ken, but that's um, how our workforce considers you, right, and, and, uh, and course, me. two-by-fours and, and, and all of those things are as resources. Humans aren't resources. Right on, right on. And I'm like, oh, we're losing the plot here. And then the, the more that we automate it and the more that we – make it, you know, autonomous so it drives itself, it does its own thing, the more that we take these disrespects of humanity and we systematize them into everything. So so now, you know, we get all the wonders of like, oh, I can get pick my phone up and have a pizza here in half an hour. Great. That's great. Do I really want that? Oh, no, I probably should cook something that's probably bad for you. I shouldn't eat it. But the, <laughs> the fact is that I can, and so we do, right? We we've got this world in which we're little atoms in a system. We're little data points in a database and they want to farm us and they want to know everything about what we're going to do next. Like we're living in this three moves ahead chess game because there's some rich dude somewhere or all powerful seeing dude somewhere who's saying, no, I need to know where you're going to go next so that I can be ahead of you to milk and extort everything out of it. And I'm going, "Ah, let's put all this together here. We've got these guys who want you to be pre-programmed. They don't want you to be a variable. They want you to be a known commodity in a system. So obviously being an outcast or an outlier isn't going to hit their, their models, you know, the way they're operating. They invested an enormous amount of money into autonomous trading bots and autonomous this and all that stuff, and the best thing they could have is a non-variable human resource. Mm. And I'm like, oh, God, Orwell was right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm it, looking at this whole thing going, this, this this, ain't progress, people, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I don't know if you ever watched the movie The Giver. No, no, I haven't. Um, essentially, I mean, they, they basically – through drugs and a variety of things pre-program everybody in it. And the whole movie is about this, this kid who somehow breaks them out of that. But it's, do you see a society like that as what they're pushing towards, like to that level of programming or is it more subtle than that? No, it's, it's far from subtle. Um, I, I just did a, a recent kind of episode on my podcast about this, but uh, there was a movie out of Britain in 2014 called Utopia, and it was brilliant. They actually tried to do a remake of that here in the States, but it was nothing like the British one. But Utopia spoke about this world in which um, human there were too many humans on the planet. Uh, we had grown at this enormous rate, and that they wanted to, uh, using biochemistry and, and all of that, they wanted to... Uh, basically uh, make it so people couldn't have babies. And the Mm -hmm. idea was that if you 
If you do that over a course of maybe 100 years, you only have, say, one in 20 that are actually fertile, that what you can end up doing is you reduce world population, which means that the resources of the planet are better spread around. But whether that's I a, had that idea a while Yeah, back. yeah. <laughs> um, the, thing, the thing that's really creepy about this whole story, it's a brilliant uh, uh, series, but the thing that's creepy about this story is the fact that the audaciousness of the central planners to feel that they had the right to be able to do something like this. Mm. And they do it without thinking that it's not a, they, they don't, they believe it to be a moral task. And I look at this whole thing and, and I'm like, we've just gone through a freaking pandemic. We don't know where the hell this came from. There are so many theories that it was a lab and all of this stuff, but mm-hmm. without without getting so pragmatic or so physical to exactly what it was, what we really should be worried about is a whole bunch of central planners who believe it's morally right to do macro-level engineering on human beings, like we're mm-hmm. all human resources or human capital or human data points we're not human and and that is what scares me the most and and what's you know from you asked about you know how do i think of being unconstrained or being contrarian well for a kid who got off the plane in los angeles at 25 and didn't know any better and you know entered the united states with wide-eyed you know optimism and everything and little by little i see this devaluation of the human to the point where we're nothing more than a little blip of data in a petabyte data center somewhere, and that we can be manipulated and that central planners believe they're morally right to do things like this, I God, get me off this bus. Yeah. Right? That, wow. That's where – and so why, why – I'm in Mexico because <laughs> here they don't – they treat people decent. They don't, you know, you might think, oh, these drug cartels with the AR, you know, the AK-47. <laughs> no, that's, that's not what life is like here. Yeah. Is, is that all a all a um, pre-programming from the media and everything, like trying to trying to make so people don't try to leave the U.S. to yeah. go to Mexico? Yeah, I mean, you know, what is it? If it bleeds, it leads. Um, yeah. This is just clickbait. It's clickbait to sell newspapers, which we don't have anymore. It's clickbait to get you to watch the nightly news. I mean, if you ever want proof of that, turn on the CBS Nightly News, a supposedly nonpartisan news story, and everything, everything is breaking news. No, it's not. Right. It's not shock and awe. Journalism is not <laughs> shock and awe. Get boring. Tell the truth. Yeah. But no, yeah. the you know, everything's got to be like an intense experience to grab your attention away from Facebook or Instagram or or TikTok videos or whatever. I'm just so tired of it all. Why don't we just go – why don't we just become human again? People respect. can't unplug and just be. Right, right. Just respect each other though. I mean, if I want to – socialize because that's part of our dna you know we're social animals mm-hmm. then go have a drink at the bar with your mates or go yeah. you know have dinner with your friends or go spend more time with your family i mean the human needs to connect with the human 
Not right, with, exactly. Not with a piece of data pretending to give you a metaverse experience because all that's doing is making you the data point to be farmed. And oh, my dog. dog just walked in with something. <laughs> oh, my. Take that outside. <laughs> she came in with a rabbit or something. I'm not sure what oh, that is. <laughs> wait a hey, dogs are honest, right? And yeah, dogs do what right. dogs do. <laughs> uh, and my door is wide open. It's, I'm in Kentucky. It's supposed to be wintertime, and it's like almost 80 degrees today. So I've just, Oh, nice. It's, yeah, it's not great for, for everything that's going to get frozen here at the next frost, but it's I'm right. loving the weather. Cool. <laughs> you had a recent episode talking about technology cautionary tale how technology has shaped our world mm -hmm. i'm a huge tech enthusiast like i love the potential that it has to make our lives better mm -hmm. how do we balance the the potential that it has and the dangers that it brings what what have you found there yeah that's a very interesting question um you know, through, I started working in software in about 1980, so say late 70s, 1980, sometime around then. Um, and I was a kid. I didn't know anything. So in order to know what I had to write, I had to ask human beings what they wanted. Mm. And, you know, that, that was a time when people were doing laboriously repetitive drudgery tasks that, you know, they didn't want to do. And, um, yeah. you know, you had things like typing pools and stenographers and along comes a word process and puts them out of business. And, you know, it was, I was in that mode, but I thought it was a, a, an evolutionary thing for people that if you make people take away their drudgery, they have a happier life and they can do more important things. But I was concerned that I was taking people's jobs away. Well, look, the, uh, Henry Ford took jobs away from horse furriers, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But then there's a hell of a lot more auto mechanics now. I mean, it's we adjust. We're good at that. Right. But all through the 80s and into the mid-90s, it used to be that software developers, software de um, designers had to also be what we called analysts. And analysts would understand the problem of the customer, what they would bring to the table, and you would look at their problem, their human problem. I can't keep up with these orders. I can't ship these products. I can't um, – I'm doing this repetitive thing unnecessarily. Uh, can you help me? Yeah, right. Let, let's let's look at what you're doing. Why? What are your goals? What are you What's your mission? What are you trying to do? Um, it was a psychotherapy session half the time because you'd get into the mind of the person and they'd explain what their goals were, what their aspirations were, and then you'd build to that. And it was always pretty successful. In 1995, this thing called the internet came upon us. And all of a sudden, the, the ability for humans to all over the world to interconnect in semi-real time, just as we are now, became normal. Um, mm. emails replaced postage stamps and you know it was things like that um all of a Good sudden yahoo messenger <laughs> yeah yeah but all of a sudden a guy like me couldn't go to a human being and ask them what they needed yeah what happened was the human being required me to tell them what they should have because they couldn't imagine a world like the internet gave us they yeah. couldn't, and, and so what happened is you've got a bunch of nerds who are normally asking questions and then building something, 
who are now the 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 power, the priests of of the future. And we're trying to tell the human being how their life should be. Well, okay, once in a while you get a nerd who's got a bit of an attitude problem and they think that they know better than everybody and they start luring these people into their world. Maybe they were beaten up as a kid, but, you know, in school, maybe they were, they have an ax to grind. Um, but they think they have the right to entrap you to um, convince you to give away your most precious secrets, your most precious thoughts and, and what you like and what you prefer and what you don't like and and that this is your private sense of you, but they feel they have the right because of this idea that, well, it's not what you want, it's what I'm going to tell you you want, mm. right? And I'm talking about Zuckerberg. I mean, yeah. there's many others, but he's just the poster child of this. And and what ends up happening is that the the poor human being who just wanted to do this job, go home and spend time with the family, has now been entrapped in Zuckerberg Zuckerberg's world and can't get out. Um, it's not that the technologies – look, it, I, I love networks, I love gadgets, I love software, I love games, I love all that stuff. Wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. What I don't like is being snared into a mind trap from this nerd mm. who has no right whatsoever but thinks that he is all-powerful and he knows better than we do. And yet we sit there and we fall prey to the metaverse he's trying to build or to the, you know, the social experiment he's trying to have, and now we're the lab rats. And, I, yeah. and that's where technology went wrong it wasn't the technology that went wrong it was these assholes that literally just took it over and grabbed a ton of money and protected themselves with their little ivory castles so they could continue to do this sort of thing and we the people sit there and just put up with it and take it and embrace it um mm. in the same way you know tiktok is the chinese communist party but no one seems to want to care about that. Right. Um, I mean, I just, technology is a double-edged sword. It can do great things, but it can do great harm too. And we yeah. just need to reclaim ourselves and our ownership of self and, yeah. and make sure that we don't let it drive us. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You talk about it driving us. And you can easily, it's easy to think, well, I know what the agenda is. I'm not being controlled. But it's it's subtle if you're not aware of what you're looking for. Like I love golden retrievers. I've got three of them, mm -hmm. and so I might be watching an Instagram reel of a retriever. I like one video, and almost all they show me are now videos with golden retrievers, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or or like in your Facebook feed. I'll you know, see you're right. Maybe my, my... ten different people, and I have over twenty five hundred connections on Facebook, and I'll see about ten different people. And two or three of those will get switched out for another two or three every couple of days. Mm -hmm. And I'll see eight or 10 posts of one person on a three minute scroll through the Facebook feed. It's yeah. they're definitely programming. If you're aware of what's going on. Well, that's what you can see. What we can't see that's going on behind the scenes is probably the more scary thing. Yeah, um, exactly. But, but yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, that's, that's the nature of this beast, but it, 
what are you going to do? I mean, I, I, I kind of think at some point that you have to sort of, the weird thing, I, here's the weird thing I discovered. When, when I needed to get surgery done in the States and they told me I couldn't have it because of a pre-existing condition or I, I wanted to get something done with Australia, they said, no, you can't come here anymore because you don't pay us tax or something hmm. like that. It was like um, I was left without any medical support and then I ended up getting a, a tumour in my shoulder that had to get cut out. Wow. And the only people who actually gave a damn about me as a human being were in Mexico. And it was a consistent thing. I'd go from town to town and it was the same thing. I constantly realised that they actually gave a crap about me. It wasn't about the money. It was about them, like, providing service. Like, you know, that was their motivation. Yeah. And I thought, well, I might not speak Spanish, but, my God, I speak human. Yeah. You know, and, and this I... This is family. <laughs> yeah, La Familia. I mean, I, I, I got it and it was like... Oh, this is if if I need safety, if I need pr- uh, protection, this is where I get it, and I feel like I had a role to play because I could bring something to the table. I could, I could teach people. I could help them. I could record their music. I could, you know, do the things that were of value to them. And then I started realizing I'm just one in a long, long line of people who have come since World War II to the town here of San Miguel de Allende. Uh, mm. They're all the GIs that you know, we're out there for country in World War II fighting, and then when the war finished, they still wanted to be of service to people. They came here. They built towns. They built orphanages. They they helped people. And here, people, the, the locals, uh, the, the Mexican people, uh, looked to expats as valuable, helped, mm. helped their society, as opposed to, infiltrators or yeah. you know liberators or whatever you want to call them um so we're welcomed here which is really unusual um at the same time i every day i'll, I'll be walking down the street and there's an ex, there's like twenty thousand expats here in town and so you bump them everywhere and you get to know them and you know their stories and they'll tell you you know the natural question is well what brought you here why did you leave the united states or canada or wherever you're from and they'll say, well, there were two, there's two reasons. They're either pushed out or they're pulled in here. For me, I was pulled in. I, I'm lucky enough in life not to need to worry about money anymore. So I didn't have to worry about the economics of the United States. I didn't feel it was very healthy. Yeah. But I, you know, I'm not the sort of guy who's going to freak out when I have to pay $10 for a dozen eggs. I think it's wrong, <laughs> but I've got 10 bucks, so I need the eggs, right? I'll, I'll make a conscious decision of price and, and product. But there are many people who don't have 10 bucks in their pocket and still need the eggs. And I was constantly bumping into these guys. They were people who, who said, I worked all my life for whatever company or government department, or I was a teacher or, I was, you know, something like that. And I always believed that my, you know, I'd get to 65 and my social security would save me. It would be enough for me to live. I didn't have any extra money. Maybe I didn't make that much. I didn't put money in a 401k or whatever. Those things are tax-advantaged setups. Right. They didn't want to do that. Maybe they didn't feel they needed to. 
And then they got to 65. And all of a sudden they got a bad back or a bad hip and they couldn't work anymore. And so they had to give up work. And they're making, you know, 2000 bucks a month on Social Security if they're lucky. And they're looking. That's going, not going to pay for anything. It's not going to pay my rent, right? They, yeah. You know, it's not. It's not going to buy ten dollars worth of eggs. I mean, yeah. it's it's like you you are you serious? And they look back in the rearview mirror. And I'm only saying this is a cautious tale, but you look back and you go, "My freaking government lied to me again," right? I, I yeah, exactly. And it's like I was so loyal. I gave so much to my country, so much to my ideology, to the point where this is how they treat me now. This is what this is what life has become yeah. after I gave so much. This is what I get back, and they're down here Madness. because down here you can live on that, but you right. can't. You couldn't do it in Dallas or Chicago or New York or I don't know if you can do it in Kentucky. Sure, it's helping doing it in Arizona. Sure, places maybe. Yeah, (laughs) it's yeah. So, what are what are you working on now to to stay unconstrained and to to even help others reach that state? Do you? I think you have some kind of a a program or membership going on where that you work with people. I I do. I I yeah. I'm trying to build a community. Um, I'm not trying to build a community for any weird sort of Jim Jones type thing. Like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm just, what I'm finding is that I'm, I'm, I'm constantly encountering people that are let down, that are not mm. there. And, and I'm, what I'm hoping is that if I encounter them when they're young enough, it's so much easier to throw away this concept of um, social mantra of, of a pre, preordained future when you're young, because your your brain is still fertile, you can still learn and challenge things. You you're willing to challenge your parents. You're willing to challenge your teachers. You know you want to do the middle finger thing and punk rock your way out of life. Well, if you're in that mindset, maybe there's good reason or good destination for somebody like that. Um, recently, I've begun within our you know building our community, and I'm encountering a lot of parents. Parents who are of, they have teenage children, uh, I shouldn't say children, young adults. And the young adults are coming to the parents going, you know, dad or mom, what should I do with my life? You know, what what do you think I should be? What are, you know, and they're, they don't know what to answer them with. And and these conversations come up and they, and they ask me, what, I, what should I do with my kid? You know, they want to do, should they become a, I don't know, a botanist or should they become a, <laughs> a software developer or whatever. And I'm looking at going, um, okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to get a little Buddhist on you here. Take yourself out of the picture and take your ego out of the equation and look at exactly what makes people happy, right? That they have the ability to build their own identity and they have the ability to challenge their thinking and they have the ability to create the future that they want. Not the future mm. that you want for them, the future yes. what they want. How do you empower that? Now, you can't give them money. They're not trust fund kids. They've got to go out there and they've got to be able to identify toil to reward. They've got to be able to realize that they're not going to be, um, you know, sitting on the couch all day and a burden on on everybody else, that they, they need to be able to be self 
you know, contained, self-fulfilled, but maybe they don't want to do it in the way that the banksters want to tell you to do it. Maybe they don't want to do it and how the teachers, I mean, you know, the, the, the crazy thing to me is you've got teachers in schools who earn very little money. I mean, I, I, I'm very grateful for anybody who wants to try to give service back in any form whatsoever. But they're, they're in these public indoctrination camps we call schools, and they're there trying to tell the kid as the school guidance counsellor what the kid should do with their lives. And they don't Are you hardly freaking know kidding me? I'm not. If I want somebody to tell me what I should do with my lives, put a billionaire in there, right? Then I'll listen. But I ain't yeah. listening to Mrs. Cratchit over here who's got problems with her husband and worried more about what she's going to cook for Thanksgiving. <laughs> she's not qualified to tell me what I should be with my life. Yeah. And, and, and yet this is what we accept because we, we don't want to create free thinking, creative people. We want to create pre-programmed non-variables, right. resources that are data points in a system because somebody will never actually be threatened by that. That's mm -hmm. our problem. Yeah, that's the only way that we need to begin. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. The the only way that the school guidance counselor thing can work is if they change their whole approach and help the kid find what they're gifted in, what they're interested in. And I mean, sometimes you don't find the thing that you want to do till your twenties, thirties, but you just got to try things like. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, don't get me started. <laughs> you went you know off what's on funny though? If, you go back in time, you go back to say the 1930s, it was a very different approach when, when kids would go to their parents and ask them what they wanted to do. Parents weren't so concerned or, should I say, scared for the well-being of their children. Their children used to ride bicycles in the street and ride yeah. horses and, you know, they were pretty tough. So when they came to the parents and they wanted to have that conversation, the parent was more likely going to actually say, I don't care whatever you want to do with your life. I just want you to be happy, right? Mm -hmm. If you read English literature from that period of time and you look at the topics of conversation, even go back to old black and white movies of the day, you know, you're going to see that the common theme around the, the hero, right, it's not the wealthy, it's not the, you know, it's the happy, it's the peaceful. It's, it was like a golden time. It's before my time. I wasn't mm. alive then, but I constantly go back and look at old literature and I realize they were talking about like Ernest Hemingway stories or well, stories where kids would, would get on a plane and go to Paris and, and find themselves or, you know, go to Nepal and climb the Himalayas and find themselves, you know. And then at some point when they did that, they'd come back enlightened and then it was damn obvious what they wanted to do with their life because they had some basis from which to, to begin. But you're 18, you don't, you're not even allowed to go into a bar in most states buy a beer. Mm. And you're expected yeah. to sign a $100,000 debt contract. You can't expunge even in bankruptcy. I mean, yeah. What part of this is wrong? I mean, everything's wrong. They're being exploited. Yeah, we would yeah, never. At eighteen, you basically have two options: sign sign your life away to go to college or military, and right. and both of those 
screw up half the people for life that that go to it. I mean, it's I in in both camps. I, I meet so many people that have been through horrifying things, either in over in another country fighting a war that they didn't understand why they were there for, mm-hmm. or you know, the college the guy that went to college and is now in his forties and still barely making minimum payments on it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Neither one of those are good options. It's funny you should say that because I I have exactly the same experience until I've got so many friends who are vets and, you know, it's just, you ask them, you know, looking back, you joined the military. Do you think you should have? I'd say nine out of 10 would say, no, it was the most stupid thing I ever did in my life. Mm -hmm. But given the alternatives, what else was I going to do? Yeah. Um, You know, I became cannon fodder. I became, you know, infantry to be shot at, um, I, my, my buddies were killed in the, you know, next to me in combat. And I'm going to walk away thinking that this didn't do any damage to me, or I'm going to pretend that it was all okay. Cause some politician felt that that was righteous. No, um, let the politician go and take a gun up and fight, you know, don't mm. send me on their behalf. I'm not their, their whipping post, you know? Yeah. Um, if, if but- you're going to sign the paper, you need to go hold the gun too. Yeah, right on, right on. And, <laughs> and maybe if that was the case, I mean, I look, there's always bad guys out there in the world. I get that. But if that was the case and everybody had a uh, – there was some skin in the game by those that make the decisions, we probably wouldn't have wars. You think right. Putin would invade Ukraine if Putin had to pull up a gun and go on the front line fight? No way in Not hell likely. he would. Not likely. Nah. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's, let's end this on a positive note. What's, where should somebody start that is just waking up to, to the control, to the, call it the mass psychosis, if you want somebody that wants to break out of that into, to be unconstrained, where do they start? Wow. Well, I mean, I think um, liberty is an important topic in that individuality, selfishness. It's okay. You're allowed to be selfish. Look after you. Um, if you start there, then you put in context everything around you and how it serves you rather than how you serve it. And at that point, you no longer become a slave. I think you start with that. Where it leads you is really up to the individual. You'll go down paths that make the most sense. For me, um, understanding things like Austrian economics, um, understanding uh, you know, a, a voluntarism, uh, things like that were important parts of me understanding that what I thought the government was not necessarily never really had my back in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was being lied to. I'm not saying that I wanted to react aggressively to that, but I certainly didn't want to continue or perpetuate it. And I certainly right. didn't want other people to fall prey to the same thing as well. Um, I guess just start with you and be selfish about it and say, I am going to take responsibility. It's that old Stan Lee thing from Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah. But you can see the power back. That's, yeah. that's at your choice. Just know that it comes with the responsibility of doing it and then forge your own journey forward, but do it from you driving the car, not somebody driving for you. Yeah. Good words. Good words. Where can somebody find out, more about you and follow you and find your podcast. Beunconstrained.com. That's everything. It's like the center of the world for me. If you go there, you'll see my ramblings. You'll see my podcast. You'll see my articles, my courseware. 
Um, you'll see uh, we have a, a thing called a matrix server, which is a, a private, non, uh, federated, uh, non-censored uh, discussion server that we host. It's not Discord, which, by the way, is owned by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, <laughs> but it's not those sort of platforms. There's no censorship on our platforms. Um, you can get access to it from the website. Uh, it, it, there's just a wealth of, of uh, things that I don't know if they necessarily open up people's brains, but they may reaffirm things they're already feeling uh, mm. and know that the, you're not alone. Our community is huge. I mean, we've got hundreds and hundreds of people on the Matrix server that are constantly finding opportunities and sharing them or uh, mentioning threats and, and risk med- mitigation issues and and just challenging a lot of social thought, not in a negative way. We're not, you know, crazy anarchists doing this. We're more just rational thinkers trying to find a path through the jungle and somebody over there discovered a quick way out and we're going to follow them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Miles, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. It's I enjoy all of our conversations. I appreciate it. No, you're very welcome, man. Thank you so much for having me and keep doing what you're doing. You bet.